This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I speak with someone who is a personal friend, Soren Gordimer. Soren is an author and teacher whose specialty is helping people find ways to reduce stress, access presence, and increase creativity, particularly in relationship to technology. He's hosting a two-day conference in Silicon Valley, April 30th and May 1st of this year, entitled Wisdom 2.0 which is also the title of a book that he's written. The conference will bring together people from a variety of disciplines, including technology leaders, Zen teachers, neuroscientists, and academics. As far as I know, this is the first gathering of its kind to explore how we can interface with the technologies of our age, from cell phones to social media, with mindfulness, meaning, and wisdom. For more information about the event, you can visit wisdom2summit.com. And now, here's my conversation with Soren on Wisdom 2.0. Soren, what's going on? What is Wisdom (laughs) 2.0? Wisdom 2.0 is this merging of wisdom and technology. So often the movement so far in the in the tech world has been a complete fascination with the gadgets and with the devices and with all that technology provides. But many people are realizing that having the latest, greatest iPhone or having a thousand followers on Facebook is actually kind of cool, but also inherently unsatisfying. And then if we're not attentive to our inner world, our inner life, all these gadgets and technologies can just create more stress and more sense of overload and more uh, hurry in our life. And so there's a rising group of people who don't just want to live constantly connected, but who want to live consciously and purposefully and effectively connected, and who want to honor all the great things that technology provides and engage with technology. But the primary place with which they live and the primary focus is not actually externally, but internally. So they want to live consciously while engaged. Okay, so let's break this down from a few different directions. I would like to live consciously. How do I live consciously with these various tools of technology? Let's take my BlackBerry Mm -hmm. or whatever my mobile connection device Mm -hmm. is. How do I relate to it with consciousness? I think the primary uh, thing to do is, is look at where is our priority. So often our priority is on the technology, right? But another way to look at that is what is the quality of attention? What is the quality of consciousness with which I'm beginning to relate to these technologies? So for example, I was in a discussion uh, recently with this uh, person who helped build the whole platform at Facebook, you know, all the, he'd been there from the early days, all the different aspects of it. And we were talking, and one of the things that we talked about, which he really resonated with, is that the external technologies are actually just a reflection of our internal state of consciousness at a a given time. So what would it be like to actually find a place internally of ease and peace and mindfulness and then engage from that place 
and then create technologies or engage with technologies from that place. Okay, well, let's just get more just yeah. nitty-gritty. Yeah, I mean, so I use my mobile device, which is a BlackBerry, as I mentioned, in all kinds of situations. I'm not mm-hmm. centered and balanced. I'm typing emails. Uh, I try not to do it while I'm actually in conversation with mm-hmm. another person mm-hmm. or in an actual not- uh, you know, different meeting, but... Mm-hmm. Get me a, a stoplight that, you know, at the stoplight, definitely, this is not the place where I should probably be, be answering emails, but yeah. I am. Yeah. What do you think about that? I think a couple different things. I think that the that um, it's fine to use the devices. However, I mean, I don't like to propose that it's good or bad to use your devices in any particular situation per se, that it's wrong to check your email 100 times a day, and it's good if you check your email 10 times a day. I'm not into that. But what I'm into is what is the state of consciousness with which we're bringing. And I think what happens sometimes is that when we don't have our gadgets, we feel disconnected. We feel out of the loop. We don't feel a connection to ourselves. We don't feel connection to other people. We don't feel connection to nature. So then we look to our gadgets to kind of feed this hunger for connection. And the gadgets never can satisfy that. And so we have this somewhat addictive relationship with our technologies, not because they exist, but because we're looking in them for something that we that we actually have to find within ourselves. But now it does feel a little bit like scratching an itch, though. I mean, it does. It has the oh. feeling after you scratch it that you you know yeah, like an, yeah, it's you, yeah. you do get that feeling of yeah. relief right yeah. after you scratch yeah. right after you check yeah and you get yeah. wow news information yeah 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 and so and it's wonderful and it's beautiful and inherently unsatisfying that there's no information that's going to come through there necessarily that's going to bring uh, a balance to our inner life now saying that there are technologies and talks and videos and stuff that sounds true and other companies are creating that actually encourage a reflection back into oneself. So I do think technology can be used as a tool for wisdom, for compassion, for awareness. But the the way in which the kind of constant downloading of new information, constant new seeking of of new emails, new information, that that energy um, can easily take one in a direction that in the end, they probably look back and say, you know what, that's actually not an energy I want to bring into my life. Okay, so you said you're not into sort of legislating to people how they should relate no. with their technical tools, which is very no. good, very <laughs> freedom-oriented of you. But what would you say are your guideposts for how to relate to technology with consciousness? So one would be, so uh, there's a quote from Thich Nhat Hanh that I really like, and he says, the greatest gift we can give someone is our presence. The greatest gift we can give someone is our presence. So one of the guideposts for me is to ask, where in this moment is it most important to give that gift to? So if I'm sitting with someone and we're having breakfast, where's my attention most needed in this moment? Is it with this person I'm sitting right in front of? Or is it with the the stream of information coming through on my gadget? It could be that there's some times where you need to to disrupt that conversation with your friend to address something on the gadget. The danger is that that the, the, the shifting of attention becomes habitual and somewhat addictive. So we're here one moment and then we're gone the next, right? You're talking to someone and then they're mentally, they're gone, they're next. And that this pres- as, as we do this, this quality of presence is actually diminished in our life rather than increased in our life. So for me, I don't like to say, put your attention on this, don't put your attention on that. But I do like to say that the, to remind people and remind myself that, the, that where, is it, our, where we put our intention can be a conscious choice 
and can be aligned with what matters to us. Or we can allow our attention just to be kind of like the, you know, the monkey mind that the Buddhists talk about that's just kind of bouncing everywhere. And when we live from that place, not only is it more stressful, but we actually are much less effective. There was a study done at Stanford recently where they found people who are multitasking, and they studied them. And what they found was that the, the more you multitasked, the worse at it you became. <laughs> So you didn't get better the more you did it. Hmm. And so I think that there is this ability, though, to be engaged with the technologies, but at the same time, remember, where am I actually consciously putting my attention where it's most needed? Or am I letting the external world can control me? Now, the results from that Stanford test sound a little counterintuitive to me. I would think yeah, as would a think multitasker that I've gotten, I've gotten quite good at it. Yeah. What do you mean? I, I'm, not, I'm getting worse at it. I don't get that. That's what they found. The uh, trying to think of the uh, researcher's name now. He's in the communications department, I believe, at Stanford. Can't recall his name, but if you do a Google search, you you can find it. Okay. And they were surprised, I think, themselves. The people who do it less seem to actually be able to to handle multiple streams. And I think it's 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 taxing on our system to to try to be juggling multiple streams of information. And yet there's this sense, this illusion that somehow we're getting something accomplished um, from that. And I think it's, if we, if we look at um, the focus that it, it, the challenge is not to respond to 100 emails or to do a lot, but what does it mean to have awakened doing or conscious doing? And so from conscious doing, we might actually send fewer emails, but the emails are clearer, they're more powerful, they're more effective. And we can send 100 emails, and if we're sending those emails from a place of hurry or a place of frustration, that's just going to create 100 more emails sent back to us because people are going to be confused and wonder what we're doing, and, um, and it, it just creates this kind of snowball effect. Okay, so let's see if we can really understand this moment, which is I want to be present with this other person, mm-hmm. but I feel this itch which is to engage with my gadget. And I ask myself this question, which I Mm -hmm. thought you posed, which was a beautiful question, which where is my attention needed right now? Mm -hmm. And the answer I get is my attention is needed to be with this person. Mm -hmm. However, I have an itch. (laughs) I don't really know what it is. I don't really understand it. And I, I know it would be rude to, like, check my gadget right in front of them. So I, like go to the bathroom and uh-huh. you know I've now developed uh-huh. people think I have some kind of urinary tract infection because I'm constantly <laughs> going to the bathroom but I'm really just going to be with my gadget yeah so w- w- what is happening underneath that even someone like myself mm-hmm. who who asks that question where's mm-hmm. my pre-, and I answer it right with mm-hmm. this person but mm-hmm. I there's what is that itch yeah. why what is this gadget yeah. doing to me yeah. Soren help me <laughs> I I I don't know the answer, but I know more and more of us are in that situation, and I feel the same itch. And we're entering this new world that I don't think any of us were really prepared for. You know, uh, we're, we're almost entered this world where we can now live constantly connected all the time. And if I stopped right now and I checked my email, I would have 10 new emails at least of new information to, to process. And we've entered this world, like it or not, where this is our, our dharma practice. This is our, our ashram, right? How do we live mindfully? I don't have all the specific answers to that, but I know that it, it's going to require a level of attentiveness and focus that in some ways maybe, uh, it's almost like today 
you you almost can't live not mindfully. <laughs> you know, the, the, there's a there's a way through that. I can't name what that is, but I feel like addressing the challenges is helpful and reminding all of us that if that there's this quality of presence that really probably matters the most. So it could be, for example, that you say, "Listen, I've got this itch. I can't stop it." I'm going to I'm going to put all my attention to this email for this moment, right? And bring full attention into that. So we don't get into do's and don'ts, but we but we get into consciousness. And I think that's really the only way of kind of finding a path through this maze. What is so seductive about getting 10 pieces of new information? I mean, I know you've looked at this under a microscope in your mm-hmm. own life and been talking to people. What what is it? Eckhart Tolle talks about how often we're, we're seeking another moment than the moment that we're in. And there's this dissatisfaction with this moment. And that there is this looking for the future to fulfill us. That somehow this moment is not quite right, but this other moment out there, when, when, the, when, the, when my life situation changes, when I get a new information that's new email that says something positive, that that moment will be more satisfying than the moment I'm in. And I think the, the art is to be fully present in this moment and to be fully engaged in this moment and to have times then when we engage with the tech and engage with the information, but that living with that constant stream all the time, I can't do it personally. I mean, when, when I do, I do it at times, and when I do do it and I lie in bed at night, my energy system doesn't feel balanced. Mm-hmm. Now, do yeah. you think there's a way that in this title, Wisdom 2.0, Something is encoded, which is we've had ancient wisdom, wisdom Mm -hmm. of being present, but now we have a new sort of evolutionary form for wisdom, which is we're going to have to bring wisdom to a new level, to a 2.0 iteration, Mm -hmm. if we're going to be able to be wise and deal with these gadgets that constantly connect us. It seems like there's kind of an, an evolutionary implication in the title as well. Maybe you can talk to that a bit. Sure. Something seems to be happening, and I don't feel the movement towards living more connected is not going to (laughs) pass. You know, I think that we're going to increasingly live more and more connected. There's a little question in my life. Now, there might be some people who actually decide to renounce technology, and they live without a cell phone, they live without a computer, but I think that is going to be a, a smaller a small percentage of the population. They're probably not listening to this conversation. <laughs> They're probably not listening to this conversation. The majority of people are going to are, are, are going to say, I'm going to say yes to these technologies, but, but I'm also going to try to say yes to purpose and meaning and presence. And I do believe that there is, within the technologies, there's an expression of a new kind of awakening. So, for example, Twitter, let's take which at the very basis of Twitter is this sharing, micro-sharing of information, little bits of information here and there. And you decide who to follow and who not to follow. But essentially with Twitter, what you're doing is you're, you're allowing different people to put short messages in your mind, right? So you're, you're, it's almost like email, but it's shorter and there can be a ton, tons of information. But it's almost as if, in some strange way, that the Internet is beginning to mirror what is already what is already true, which is we're all connected and our thoughts are all connected. And this is some kind of aspect of that. And so now, for example, for Twitter, rather than get my news in the past, like when I was a kid, there was four news stations, and that's how I got my news, was from these news stations. Now I get my news from friends and from other people. 
and that there's a sense of community and there's a sense of sharing there's a sense of egalitarianism and there's a sense of um, of an, uh, once those channels are open there's a sense of new possibility and so I do think that there is a consciousness that is emerging and it's starting to express itself even within the technologies okay well I want to have a question about that because sure. people talk a lot about online community we're going to be a community online yeah. do you think that the real values that come from community, connection to other people, real warmth and, and a feeling of like we're traveling together, can that really be accomplished on a technological platform? Or what aspects yeah. of community can and yeah. what aspects can't? Yeah. I think that the aspects that can is that people can meet around shared interests. So if I'm a young person, let's say, in a small town in Idaho, and I have nobody I connect with, let's say, around Buddhism or, or some subject, the fact that I can go online and download podcasts and information and, and talk to other people who are also interested in that subject, that can, for a lot of people, is a huge opening because they find a community where there isn't one in their immediate environment. Some people are disabled, some people can't travel, a lot of situations, and that the Internet provides a sense of, of community for some of those people. Now, the, the danger is, is when that takes precedent over what they call real-life interactions mm -hmm. and real-life engagement. And I think the, the beauty is, can we balance both of those? Because I feel like, my experience anyways, and I've been involved in a lot of online communities, is that without, um, without some real-life connection, they tend to, those connections tend to disperse and not be as rich as they could be. So, for example, a lot of the speakers that are coming to the Wisdom 2.0 conference, I actually first met them through Twitter, and I first communicated with them through Twitter, and we got a sense of each other, and they got a sense, hey, this is someone I really want to meet. And then we met in person. And without Twitter or Facebook, I still could have done that, but with, with the online communities, I can just get a sense of what their interests are, who might be cool to meet. But for me, I then always follow it up in person and then connect with someone. And then our communication is much different. Mm -hmm. Tell our Sounds True listeners, Soren, how Wisdom 2.0 became your passion and interest. So from an early age, I, I grew up in, quickly, <laughs> I grew up in Lubbock, Texas, a, a small town in a West Texas, very conservative, and had a real strong interest in meditation and, and spiritual practices, and particularly after my parents divorced and I was going through a lot of suffering. And my father introduced me to Ram Dass and Stephen Levine's work and Jack Cornfield's work. And so I was, I from a young age, had a real deep interest in spiritual practice and ended up doing a couple books, writing a meditation book for teens, working in juvenile halls with young people. But when I got to the, when I, when I got to technology, I realized this is actually, of all the things I've done, this is actually the most difficult place to bring mindfulness to. Uh -huh. Like, I get more lost on the internet than I get in any other facet of my life. And I kind of had this wake up and I was like, wow, this technology is like kind of taking over my life. And is this really what I want? And I realized if I'm having a challenge with this, my guess is thousands, if not millions of other people are also having the same challenge. So part of my passion then is, can we make this more of a transparent conversation? Can we make this, foster this conversation in our culture? And that as long as we have the conversation, which is the main conversation now, is how cool are the gadgets? 
and how can I live constantly connected and get more friends and more popularity on the social networks, that, that isn't, that's going to take our society down a certain direction that I don't think in the end we want. And what I, the conversation I feel passionate about fostering is what is this sense to engage consciously and meaningful and purposefully. And to me, that is something that each person has to be able to find themselves. But just shifting the question creates new openings and new possibilities. And what I'm excited about the Wisdom 2.0 conference is that there's people like the vice president at Twitter, the vice president at Google, um, lots of different techies who are in strong positions who also say, yes, this is an important conversation. We want to be a part of this too. Well, it's interesting when you say this is the hardest place to introduce meditation or mindfulness is in our relationship to technology. Because the insight I had during this conversation is when we were talking about the metaphor I brought forward, scratching an itch. Mm. Well, of course, as a meditator, I know what it means to sit in a long retreat and not scr- not literally, not, not move, mm-hmm. even when I start to feel physical pain. I know how to be with that mm-hmm. pain and not you know, move my posture a hundred different yeah. times. But yet, honestly, when I see that little red light go off on my BlackBerry that means yeah. I have a new message, I become so rabid. <laughs> and I, I've never quite made the connection that I could actually relate to this as a meditation. Yeah. I think that's the only way. The only way is to make it our practice. Um, and like any practice, it's it's moment to moment, and it's like any practice, it's mo- it's evolving. But I think as long as we have our spiritual cushion life, and then we have our tech life, where we're t- like as long as those two are separated and they're not integrated, that um, that we're not likely to create this new earth or this new world that we all want really want to move towards. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the questions that's interesting to me is how can we use these technological devices of all kinds, including things like Twitter Mm -hmm. and Facebook, not that they're devices, but innovations, technical innovations, to support the transmission of wisdom? Mm. What are your thoughts about that? I think it's still being explored. Uh, One interesting phenomenon is just meeting with a woman who started a user on Twitter, and she called it Tiny Buddha. And every day, Lori... Deshni, I think is how you pronounce her last name, beautiful young woman, she started this process where every day she offers a wisdom quote on Twitter. So every day she finds one quote of wisdom teachings and she posts it. It's become hugely popular on Twitter. I think she 70,000 people follow her and get her quotes every day. So there's people like her and others who are trying to then use those platforms and say, how do we bring in wisdom teachings and how do we bring in uh, awareness teachings within those? And it's, I feel like it's very new, but I think exploring and asking that question um, opens up new possibilities. One of the concerns I've had is that everything has become atomized or, you know, brought down to the ADD audience of, you know, mm-hmm. you have to communicate the most yeah. profound things in however many characters. And yeah. can you really communicate deep wisdom in a quote, in a saying. I mean, doesn't it take uh, a deeper engagement than that? Mm -hmm. And maybe this is just, you know, an opening of a door, but are we going to spend how much of our time spinning around in doors versus going deeper? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think ideally the, the systems that would be put in place would have all of those possibilities. 
So there could be quotes that you could get every day. There could be articles that you could read. There could be groups that you could engage with online. There could be groups you could meet with in person in your community. There could be courses that you could take in person. I think the the way to address it is to make sure that there's a wealth of buffet for people and, and allow people to be able to engage in whatever way that they're comfortable with. I do have that same question in my mind of how much can technology actually serve this this awakening? And I have my own doubts. My exploration right now is to try it and is to dive in. So I'm an active user of all the social networks and I'm engaged with the technology. What I actually find in the end, personally for me, may be that I, I live actually quite a bit without it. Uh, I can see that as a possibility. But right now I'm, I'm in the experiment. I, I'm, I'm wanting to jump in and and I also am really inspired by the people I've met at the tech firms at Facebook and Google and Twitter who share this same vision, who, sh- who share the same vision of, of, a con- of a consciously connected life. And I think we're all in an experiment at this point. But it's possible that one of your, maybe not conclusions, but one of the places you might rest at a certain point is, I'd like to have 80% less technology in my life than I have yeah. now or something like that. Very much. Very much. I'm, I'm, it's it's very possible that at certain times in my life that will that will be the case. So I'm not, people ask me, well, are you pro-technology? And I say no. And they say, well, are you anti-technology? I say no. So what are you? And I say, I'm, I'm pro-awareness. You know, I'm pro, um, and that from that awareness, we can decide for ourselves how much to engage, how much not to engage. But I think that taking a strong, it's so hard to take a strong position against technology. And it's also such a uh, such a hard position to take a position for technology because everyone can argue both sides. It's good, it's bad. But I think the real question then is, what does it mean for me to engage consciously? Now, I noticed that you invited a neuroscientist to the Wisdom 2.0 conference. What does neuroscience have to say about this question of mm-hmm. conscious engagement with technology? So part of uh, the intention of the conference is to begin to foster this conversation, particularly in the tech community. So in the tech community, uh, in my experience in the tech community, you know, every community has something, has a myth that no one is supposed to really talk about. You know, in my experience, every spiritual community, there's like a subtle myth that we just don't talk about anger, we don't talk about this. And my experience within the technology community is that the subtle myth is that technology is always good and that these gadgets can satisfy us completely. And what is missing and what needs to be brought out is that that's, that myth isn't the case, that the technologies can do wonderful things, but they're not going to satisfy us. So part of the intention then is to foster this conversation within the technology community and to look at the benefits of an inner life and mindfulness. And so it felt it was important for someone to talk actually from the science perspective, the neuroscience perspective, of what are some of the studies that show that this is actually helpful. So the people who are in the crowd who are more science-minded, who kind of, that actually opens the door of possibility of practice for them, that that can be addressed, and then we can move on from there. But are there studies that have been done with how checking your email 100 times a day screws up various aspects of your nervous system <laughs> and things like that? There, there are some studies that, that show that it's almost that the same addictive um, pattern that is true for any addiction is, is the same with, with, our, with our email. And there's more and more studies that are starting to happen 
looking at our relationship to te- technology. Um, but I think if, if we just look at our own inner laboratory, our own mind and body, we can begin to discover what works and what doesn't work. The, the presentation that I see happening at Wisdom 2 was mainly going to look at what does science tell us in terms of the benefits of practicing mindfulness mm-hmm. and how, why is that important to apply to our life. For me, the science part is kind of like, it's not a huge piece, um, but I know for a lot of people, particularly in the tech community, that's actually an important piece, and it, it opens the door for them for, for investigation. Okay. So earlier in our conversation, you said, what needs my presence right now? Yeah. And that that's a question we can ask as we're potentially about to engage in a gadget and a group mm-hmm. setting, that kind of thing the people that we love who flew in from far away to see us and things Uh like that. What other tips do you have for how I can relate to technology consciously? Uh One of the tips I have is uh, body awareness. I feel like often when I get lost, it's reflected in my body. And if I have to ask, what is my uh, state of consciousness at this time when I'm engaging online, usually my body has the answer. If I tune into my body, I can feel whether I'm engaging from a creative place or from a habitual place. And I think that the body awareness, which when we're on a computer, it's so cerebral, and we're so just like down, more information, more information, more information, that the uh, the practice of, of bringing awareness to the inner body is sometimes Eckhart talks about, and feeling the inner body that that becomes a great technique for knowing when we're off and how to get back on. And what you mean by the inner body? I know it's the a inner term body for the, the, yeah. the feeling, the from not to from my interpretation, is the is the living experience of the sensation of of life within our within our body. So it's not thinking about the body. It's not like how's my body feel. It's it's feeling the life pulsation, energy force that exists within our within our body, no matter our life situations. Our life situation may be pleasant, our life situation may be unpleasant, and yet no matter the conditions in life, there's this, there's this um, pulsating energy vibrancy of, of life itself that is, is uh, accessible that we might also call presence. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a good tip. <laughs> Tune into the inner body. Yeah, not in a judgmental way. I shouldn't be, my shoulders shouldn't be this or that, but in a fun, playful, creative way. Yeah, the inner body, how does my, and then from that, does the body do what feels organically like it wants to happen? Do I need to take a break? Can I continue for another 10 or 15 minutes? But, But coming into a different kind of intelligence, which I think that's the awakening that's wanting to happen on our planet, is a different kind of intelligence deeper than the mind. And what technology is really good at is kind of feeding our mind with information. It's not so good at reminding us to tap into that deeper place of intelligence. And I feel like for our culture and our world to survive, it's going to come from something deeper. Have you run experiments where you've turned off technology for a period of 48 or 72 hours and then compared it to how you feel when you have all your gadgets with you and and fully active? Fully loaded. It's, it's interesting. I was in Africa for three weeks uh, this this last year, and I couldn't connect uh, much at all. I didn't cell phone didn't work, and I, I couldn't get online very much. And uh, it was a different experience. It it uh, you know, it's almost like hard for me to remember though what it was like before I had email, 
you know, like, and that wasn't that long ago, but five or ten years ago, I might like lie around and read a book in the evening. It was a different pace. Now, most of my evenings, I'm connected. I turn it off at some point, but it's a whole different pace of life when we live constantly connected. And I think for most of us to do it consciously, there's going to need to be times where we completely unplug and we we make space for a different mode of being. Because mm-hmm. it's a hard life. <laughs> it, it's, it's work to process all this information. And you think, well, so what? I'm just checking my email. So what? I'm just reading this information. But it's, it's, it's process the, for the body and the mind to process that information. It's, it takes work. That's why after 10 hours or 5 hours on the computer downloading information in our heads, we're fatigued, Right. Not only are we expecting a new website to open every 10 seconds and and having to process that information, but uh, our system can only take so much information. It's like the Zen Zen story with the professor goes to the Zen master, and he says, I'm going to tell the Zen master everything I know about Zen, and I'm going to have the Zen master tell me everything he knows about Zen, and then I'll have all this knowledge about Zen. So the professor goes to meet the Zen master and tells him all the knowledge, all the facts, all the figures he has. And Zen Master replies by saying, do you want some tea? And the professor says yes. And he starts pouring tea. And even as the cup overflows, he keeps pouring the tea. So tea is like flowing everywhere. And finally, the professor says, stop, the cup is full. It won't take anymore. And the Zen Master says, just like this cup, your mind is full. How can I teach you about Zen unless you first empty your mind, empty your cup? And I think this is a teaching for our culture today where it's so easy to fill our mind. But without the emptying, without that time of inner, um, the information, not only do we not digest it and process it very well, but it, it actually has a negative impact on our system. You made this comment that there are more studies that show that our relationship with email is addictive. It, 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 we're mirroring addictive behavior. And I can definitely speak from my own experience. I think I've made that pretty clear in this <laughs> conversation, that I'm an addict. I'm still, I think, trying to figure out exactly what... What it serves yeah, for your life? Yeah. yeah. I, I, can, I can't say. What it, what it serves for my life is that I feel connected. I feel important. I feel like there's someone out there who's caring for me, who's thinking about me, who wants to connect with me. And so when I get the email and I'm like, wow, someone took some time to communicate with me. Even if I don't like what they communicated... There's still this feeling that someone out there spent some time to connect with me. Right. And, and I think that's a beautiful thing. But can we feel that just walking down the street and connecting to the trees and connecting to the sky? Can we feel that connection in all these other places? Not just there. I think right. that's, that's, that's what it does for me. Well, I think that's a really important question, which is what is this addiction serving? That's really the question you're mm-hmm. asking. I mean, that yeah. would be the question one could ask with any addiction. Yeah, and I think at the end, it's spiritual. It's a spiritual. It's not a judgmental or like you shouldn't be addicted or you shouldn't long for connection. I just think we so long for connection. And sometimes we, we forget that the, the beauty of nature and the connection all around us and the trees and the birds, and there's this enormous realm of connection that we can tap into at any moment. Mm-hmm. And, and the technology is just a part of that. Mm-hmm. If the technology becomes our source for feeling that, I think that's where... There might be a little imbalance. Now, what would you say are the key questions you're asking as 
we ramp up here for the Wisdom 2.0 conference? Mm-hmm. What are the key questions that you want the dialogue to be about? Mm-hmm. There's two parts. The main one is this question of fostering this conversation about what does it mean to live consciously and connected in our world today? How are people doing that? What's working? What's not working? What are ways we could bring more of a sense of wisdom and compassion into our lives amidst this connected life? For me, there's a there's a value in... I know some conversations can just lead nowhere, right? Some conversations, it's just people talking and da-da-da-da. But I feel like other conversations, they're conversations that bring apart a new a new movement, if you will. Not that I'm trying to create a per se, but a new movement. But I think outing this conversation, you know, as long as anything is denied, as long as anything's suppressed, as long as anything is not transparent, it begins to kind of eat away. And as soon as things become transparent, then it becomes workable. Then we can all have a way of finding a balance with it. So I feel like just your honesty and just other people's honesty, that in itself, it has power to it. And that in itself begins to take what I think is largely hidden in our culture and begins to make it transparent and visible and provide the the place to then move from there. Does that make sense? Yeah, you said there were two things. So is that... Oh, and then the second was, now that we are using these technologies, what does it mean if they were to support wisdom and compassion awareness? Mm -hmm. If, If they were not just tools to kind of keep us entertained, but if they're actually tools for these qualities, um, how, do we, how do we go about creating them? What do we do? What would that look like if there was a happiness uh, app, you know, or, or what are some ways that, that they can actually be tools for this greater awakening? I think that's the second question that, I, that probably goes hand in hand with the first. Wonderful. I've been speaking with Soren Gordimer, who's the convener and host and creator of the Wisdom 2.0 conference, which will be taking place April 30th to May 1st in the Bay Area, that's correct? Silicon Valley. Perfect spot. If you want more information, it's wisdom and then the number two summit.com. So that's wisdom numero two summit.com. And Soren is also the author of a book called Wisdom 2.0. Sounds True is a media sponsor of the Wisdom 2.0 conference. It's a topic that I think is important for what we're doing here and important for our listeners. So thank you, Soren, for coming and talking to us about it. Good to be here, Tammy. For SoundsTrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.